All right, welcome to another edition of Bitcoin Tech Talk. This is issue number 247. As always, you can uh, subscribe to my newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. and comes out every Monday at 9 a.m. Central Time. And it has a lot of news related to the technical happenings in Bitcoin. Uh, so I'm going to read through it now. Um, centralization is the enemy of property rights, Bitcoin Tech Talk number 247. Users are getting the platforms. Banks are cutting off access to certain types of businesses. Accounts are getting frozen. Even entire applications are being kicked off of AWS, Apple, App Store, and so on. These are not good days if your views on a company, uh, your views are contrary to the small window of allowable opinion and the ability of large companies to control the behavior of individuals seems to be greater than ever. Why do t big tech companies have so much power? Why are they in a position to deplatform whoever they want? Social media platforms can censor users because they're provided for free. Despite the end-user license agreements that nobody reads, there's no real contract there because, in a sense, the users are the product. These platforms all make their money off of ads. Another way to think of these platforms is as giant honeypots to attract users so that their attention can be packaged and sold to advertisers. The business model makes sense in that there are plenty of organizations that want users' attention, and these platforms are optimized to keep your attention, making it easy for organizations to pay to get it. The unfortunate consequence, however, is that the users are left without much recourse when they're kicked off. This comes back to the fact that there's no real contract when it comes to these platforms. Users aren't paying exactly, so they're not really party to or they aren't really party to a trade. They're getting access for free, so when access is taken away, there's no real compensation due to them. Indeed, this is at the heart of the problem on these platforms. There are no clean boundaries or edges to property. If you have an account on Twitter, for example, who owns the account? In a sense, you created the account, but it's hosted on Twitter. Furthermore, you didn't pay Twitter for the account, so there's no real market transaction that was made and no real obligation that Twitter has to you. An account on Twitter, in other words, has fuzzy property boundaries and it's unclear who owns what. Governments may pass laws saying you have the right to your own data and so on. But again, you provided it to the company and you didn't pay them to store it for you. So it's hard to argue from a property standpoint that they owe you anything. The lack of property boundaries in this case are what cause all the confusion. Twitter clearly owns the databases that hold their data. Users, on the other hand, have clear ownership of what exactly? their tweets, their username, an account within Twitter is in some sense property, and so is perhaps the copyrights to the content, but it's not at all clear what is Twitter's and what is the user's. The centralized party here is what blurs these lines of property. Possession is hard to define given that Twitter controls some aspects and the user controls other aspects. In a sense, the extent to which users control their own accounts is limited by the fact that Twitter sits as the centralized authority. 
Indeed, the more centralized a piece of property is, the less property rights individuals have. The level of centralization is affected by regulation, monopoly, and so on, but ultimately they all limit the user from doing what they want with the property in question. In a very real sense, centralization takes away our property rights. This is the problem we, that's been prevalent in fiat money. The centralization of money in all its forms, be it the money, the ability to confiscate, censor, and inflate, have debased our property rights over money. We all get to spend our money with the permission of the centralized parties that regulate our transactions, such as Visa, ACH, or FinCEN. The more single points of failure there are, the more our property rights are degraded. Significantly, bearer instruments have traditionally been the thing that gives people the most property rights. Possession, as they say, is nine-tenths of the law. Physical possession is hard to get in the middle of. But even there, physical confiscation is possible, such as in Executive Order 6102, which sees the gold of every U.S. citizen. In Bitcoin, we have a bearer instrument that's not physical and that changes the game in terms of property rights. This is the first scarce property that cannot be confiscated. Central parties cannot compel dispossession. That in turn means that the boundaries of property rights are even clearer in Bitcoin than in anything physical, let alone the murky waters of property rights that are so typical of centralized services in the digital realm. So I wrote this uh, a while back, and I never published it, so I, I reworked it a little bit for uh, today's newsletter. Uh, but it occurs to me that centralization in all its forms is really a way um, to regulate or to take away the property rights of, uh, of, it, uh, of, of the people that they are regulating. In a sense, if you need permission to do something with your property, then it's not really your property in the, in, in the truest sense. You don't get to um, do whatever you want with it. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a sad reality, especially with money, because uh, you know, there, because everything is so digitized and digital things are way more centralized than physical things, uh, because it, it, like every message packet essentially flows through that central entity, um, it, it degrades our, um, our rights that much more. Uh, the remarkable thing about Bitcoin is that as much uh, additional centralization is added through digitization uh, in centralized services, it, it removes um, sort of almost any kind of, uh, you know, dispossession or um, property rights that you may, uh, you, you may have uh, in the digital realm are, are much weaker. But when it's decentralized, in, like in Bitcoin, you get way more property rights. Uh, it, because it's unconfiscatable. And that really does change the game. And this is why Bitcoin is just so powerful, because it it is decentralized and there is no central authority. And, um, you know, digitization, it turns out, like sort of pushes um, things uh, a little more to the extreme in the, in the sense that, like, you know, if it's centralized, then it, it centralizes all that that much more. If it's decentralized, it's decentralized that much more. All right, let's look at some stories on Bitcoin. Andrew Chow and Peter Woolley have uh, 
published seven proposed BIPs regarding output descriptors. Uh, descriptors have been in Bitcoin Core for the past couple of years, but it's now specified in well, several BIPs. The idea is to have a language that can describe different wallets, including multi-sig and things much more complicated. Wallet developers would do well to study these and incorporate these into their wallets. So descriptors are great because um, you can tell like, uh, you know, which account uh, things are in and so on. So um, really good stuff. And I, I hope that, um, you know, uh, the, these BIPs get published so more wallet developers can incorporate them into their wallets. We just had the largest difficulty adjustment ever in Bitcoin. The actual difficulty decreased by 28% and is due to all the mining equipment that's currently looking for new homes outside of China. Difficulty can decrease by as much as 75% in a single period, but that would mean blocks that take around 40 minutes and 2016 blocks taking eight weeks instead of two. I expect difficulty to go back up after the current period as miners are likely losing a lot of money not putting their equipment to work. Uh, so yeah, it, it's um, actually astonishing that it, we, we had such a big difficulty drop uh, because I believe the period before also was a difficulty drop. So clearly a lot of mining equipment is moving and um, you know the logistics behind moving that much equipment is is not simple and uh and especially trying to find homes outside of china uh, and clearly a lot of the miners um you know aren't necessarily used to um you know doing business um you know internationally to find homes for this stuff and i'm sure there are like regulatory headaches and import restrictions and so on so um it is very interesting uh but Things seem to be chugging along uh, as normal. I, I believe the mempool cleared this morning. So, um, yeah, it's good stuff. Now that Taproot is locked in, Jeremy Rubin writes about the next soft work. He goes through the possibilities, which are SigHash AnyPrevOut, OpCat, OpCheckSig from Stack, and OpCheckTemplateVerify. He goes through a comparative in analysis of all four and goes through the open questions behind each the relative safety of each, and what synergies they have with each. I would have liked to see his opinion on cross-input signature aggregation, which he didn't put uh, as a possibility, but then again, I don't think there's a solid proposal like the things mentioned above. Definitely worth reading for those wanting to learn what's ahead. So yeah, uh, Jeremy's uh, been, you know, um, you know, pushing for his object to like verify. I think this is part of that series. Uh, but really informative article about like all, all these open questions, uh, what those things are, and uh, you know how uh, they affect different things. The LM Markets newsletter has an amazing overview of DLCs. There's much more in the article, but the explanation of how DLCs work was the best part. DLCs are discrete lock contracts and require an oracle to settle. They go over the startups in the space, how DLCs work in practice, and what they're useful for. DLCs have some centralization around the Oracle, but at least any treasury is out in the open for anyone to see if the Oracle cheats. I honestly wonder how DLCs will do in the future. Will there be a market for products of this nature? Is transparency enough to put some money at risk? Uh, so yeah, it, it, um, DLCs occupy this uh, weird middle... Um, 
uh, ground because you, you can do a lot of these things in, on centralized services. You could go on Deribit, for example, and um, buy Bitcoin options or whatever. Um, using DLCs, you can do that, but you know you still need an oracle to tell you what the price of Bitcoin is at the expiration, um, and then you can settle, uh, and that can all be automated and so on. Uh, but that—that's um, you know—is there a market for that? If you, if you're going to trust an oracle, would you like? Is it that much a, a of a big step to trust, uh, say, a centralized party? Um, yeah, you know, it, it get it gets a little tricky. Uh, so I, I am curious to see how this uh, um, this sort of thing shakes out. Amboss is an excellent Lightning Network Explorer. You can search for nodes and claim your own if you so choose. They also have very useful statistics like channel capacity, number of channels, and the ages of channels. There are nice graphs of how each channel has changed over time. I suspect that tools like this will become more necessary as nodes automate decisions about whom to open channels with. Uh, so it, it is interesting in the sense that you can go look up different nodes on the network and see how, um, you know, how they're doing and what, what things... Um, uh, you know what what stats they have and so on and um, generally you're going to want to connect to well connected nodes uh, if you're doing like payments or receiving payments uh, if you're a routing node though uh, you may want different stats right uh, you you might want to connect um, you know different nodes that have that that are popular but aren't connected to each other and you can be like sort of like a conduit uh and so on so um yeah lo lots of interesting um stats there that i i think in the future uh lightning software will take advantage of to uh figure out who to connect to because that that right now is mostly left up to the user in running your own node uh but some automated decision-making or parameters and using a site like this would be ideal. If you want to run a Lightning node, PlebNet is a network of Lightning node operators helping each other. They have a fantastic starting guide, but the more important aspect is the community. The idea is to create a network that's outside the mainstream companies to help route a lot of payments and learn more about the Lightning network. Communities like this are what will help grow the Lightning Network, which really is peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, so I believe this started on um, uh, on Clubhouse. Uh, a bunch of people decided to run their own nodes and connect each other and add channels and, and things like that. Um, so now it's like become a full-fledged thing, and there's, there's a lot of Lightning Node operators, a Telegram group, and you can connect to each other and so on. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, meant to be a place where you can sort of learn how to do everything. Um, great site. I, I hope they continue uh, growing. And, you know, uh, it, it's a really nice sort of like ground level thing that's happening. Stacker News is a lightning-powered hacker news-like site. The idea is that instead of votes that can easily be Sybil attacked, as they often are on Hacker News or Reddit, you can use lightning to vote on news items. I have to say that I really like the site, and given that it's only one sat to boost any news item, it's really cheap. The quality of posts there are much more technical than what you'd get from our Bitcoin on Reddit, so it does seem like something is working. It's also open source, so anyone can clone and create their own version. A site is a great use of Lightning's natural civil resistance. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, the, the stories on Stacker News are pretty good, and the quality, um, you know, tends to be, uh, you know, based on whoever is voting. It's also open source, so you can, like, go and make your own uh, version and, uh, you know, invite the people that you want, which I, I think would be ideal. Um, and then you can have sort of like a, a Reddit that's not open to everybody, you know, like that's that's kind of like a, a more private Reddit and, um, you know, only allow people, for example, that are Bitcoin maximalists or something like that. That I, I think there's some serious potential here and I hope uh, more people work on things like that. Economics, engineering, etc. Alex Gladstein has an important long read on uh, Cato Journal about the elimination of cash and the coming war between surveillance and freedom. The article highlights why governments are pushing for CBDCs and how they're using it for surveillance, which they couldn't do with cash. Furthermore, Alex makes the argument that governments are engaging in a form of social engineering through the tools CBDCs make available. He then turns to Bitcoin and shows how technology can also be a tool for freedom. So, um, you know, I, I touched on this a little bit on the article, but, uh, you know, like in the physical world, there's only um, there, there's a limit to the amount of centralization and control that you can have um, in the digital world um, that that limit increases significantly because everything has to flow through the central party. Um, similarly, uh, in the in the physical world, decentralization is also somewhat limited because, you know, f like physical things can still be seized. Uh, whereas in the digital world, um, when it's decentralized, it can be decentralized that much more because you can't forcefully confisc confiscate it. Um, so great article, very long, but definitely worth reading. Uh, Peter St. Onge uh, argues on Mises.org that Lightning is what will take Bitcoin to hyper-Bitcoinization. His argument is that as Lightning grows, there's less friction for Bitcoin's use for payments, which ultimately makes it so that people can get off of fiat money in a hyper-Bitcoinization scenario. El Salvador is a great testbed for this thesis, as a lot of Lightning nodes help connect the people at Bitcoin Beach, and the government there has made Bitcoin legal tender. So... Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily buy the argument, but it's an interesting thought. Uh, will, will Lightning really uh, take us to hyper-Bitcoinization? Will um, you know, the ability to stay in Bitcoin, essentially, and not have to do the conversion and reducing that friction, will, will that uh, cause everybody to just keep going on the Bitcoin train um, and you know, take us to hyper-Bitcoinization? It's a great question. And... Uh, you know, I, I think we're we're at least a few years away from that, but um, El Salvador will sort of show us where that is. Strike is getting into the exchange business. They plan to have the lowest fees in the market at 0.3% and plan to challenge the current players with the lower fees. Long term, I think this is where we're all headed as fees will likely be a race to the bottom. We're still at the stage where most consumers are fine paying for more for convenience and usability, but the time is coming when someone will offer convenience, usability, and low fees. I hope Strike or someone like them is successful. So, um, you know, they, they've been making a lot of news lately, um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're going to challenge the Coinbase's of the world, uh, which charge in the realm of 3 to 4%. So... Um, yeah, uh, a tenth of that price, I think it can still make a lot of money. I, I believe most of Coinbase's revenue 
um, comes from uh, you know these fees that that's almost all of it so um, if strike can undercut them I, I don't see why they wouldn't be successful Colin Harper predicts uh, the consequences of the China mining ban. The main consequences are that ASICs will be dropping in price while at the same time increasing the value of hash rate. Traditionally, mining has been dominated by capital and equipment costs of the ASICs themselves, but it looks like energy infrastructure right now is the big bottleneck. He predicts regulatory clarity as miners try to avoid what happened to them in China and a decrease in Chinese pools to reduce counterparty risk. I liked the article as it was thoughtful and well-reasoned. Um, yeah, so the the miners moving out of China, I think, definitely uh, shows sort of like the weaknesses of authoritarian governments like China uh, and, and what they're capable of doing. Because they're just so incredibly centralized, they can sort of like, uh, on a dime, like ban, uh, ban mining in a bunch of places. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of these mining... Uh, uh, miners will be moving to um, countries with better regulatory uncertain uh, regulatory uh, frameworks. They'll probably uh, be looking for um, you know clarity in that regard. They'll probably be using pools that are closer to them, um, so they're they're not risking like China banning pools, for example, and things like that. Um, and certainly they'll be looking for good energy infrastructure, which um, honestly has to be built out at this point. And that's probably the big bottleneck at the, at the moment. Uh, the New York Times does a good job of exposing how the Internet computer token, ICP, fizzled after their ICO. This is a token that has dropped 90% since its inception, um, and that was only a few months ago. And the article details why this might be. Much like fiat money, uh, the insiders look like the ones that are making out like bandits, while anyone that isn't an insider has lost substantially. The article is a reminder that ICOs are alive and well and are still the cesspool of the cronyism that they were back in 2017-2018. Uh, so yeah, that uh, the ICP token sort of showed up on CoinMarketCap, I think like a few months ago, and it's uh, it's gone down 90%. Um, and it's still worth a decent amount of money, but like the New York Times article just shows like how uh, insiders make all of the money while the people, you know, uh, the common people are losing it. Kind of sad, but that's that's how all these altcoins are. Uh, Mir Mircea uh, Popescu is apparently dead. If you don't know who he is, a uh, really interesting character that was much more uh, prominent in the 2011 to 2014 era um but yeah he's apparently dead which would be really crazy uh but then again he he did do mpex uh mp being his initials and ex standing for exchange um it's a pretty crazy website uh it, it really wasn't a, net, a website you, you actually had uh, could like trade different securities that he he made or uh that that uh would be on there and so on um but yeah, uh, really interesting. Go read the article if you're interested in his, uh, you know, connection to Bitcoin. Alex Burge has an epic tweet thread about how Ethereum is broken. Uh, yeah, he he went uh, on and on about just how, like, all the different things that are completely wrong with Ethereum and how incredibly centralized it is. And as I've written up in, uh, or uh, talked about earlier. 
you know, centralization basically takes away your property rights. And I think Ethereum essentially doesn't give you much in the way of property rights. Um, there have been some pretty stupid altcoins, but it's hard to think of something with so much backing that's so stupid as WorldCoin. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's apparently a coin that's uh, trying to do UBI or universal basic income. Go read about it. It's really, really stupid. Another week, another exploit on an altcoin platform. This is a stable coin. Um, yeah, go. Uh, you can you can go read about it. But this is why uh, doing anything on these platforms that are completely centralized is a giant risk. I will be at the Bitcoin Standard Conference on August 12th to 14th in Mexico, and uh, Bitblock Boom in Dallas on August 26th to 29th. And I will be doing the programming blockchain seminar in Mexico, August 10th and 11th. Um, and this is for programmers that want to learn about Bitcoin. And you can apply on programmingblockchain.com. And I have some scholarships available. You can go look on the website to go apply for that as well. Uh, uh, on this week's Bitcoin Fixes This, I talked to Alex Epstein about fossil fuels, the importance of stable energy uh, production and the benefits of Bitcoin to the energy grid. Um, I read through last week's newsletter on Twitter Spaces, uh, which you can find, and I debated Jim Bianco on Real Vision about the usefulness of DeFi, and I was on Tone's show to talk about the difficulty adjustment, John McAfee, and much more. Uh, I have three books available, uh, Thank God for Bitcoin, The Little Bitcoin Book, and Programming Bitcoin. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this newsletter. I am an advisor, uh, and I'm excited to be a part of a company that's enhancing the security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi-saved, collaborative custody, or Bitcoin native financial services, learn more at unchained.com. All right, Fiat Delenda Est. This song is done. <laughs>